My name is Josh McLean. I'm one of the pastors here at Hagerstown Church, and it is my joy and privilege to be bringing the Word of God to you this morning. Before we jump into the text, which will be in Mark chapter 8, so if you want to turn there while I'm gibbering on, I want to ask you a question. What's the best meal that you ate this past week? This is a rhetorical question. I don't really want you to answer it, not out loud anyway. I want you to think about that. What's the best meal that you ate this past week? Husbands, let me give you a tip. If your wife made any meals this week, it should be that one. <laughs> but anyway, you're not to answer this out loud. Think about that meal that you had this week. What day was it? What time was it? How good was it? Did you feel satisfied? Now, hold that in your mind and answer this question. What did you eat for lunch or dinner on October 12th, 2020? I have no prize for you if you can remember that, but you can assume, and if you do assume you're correct, I don't expect you to know the answer to that question. But I can imagine that this is true of you, that you ate on October 12th, and you may not remember what you ate, but I can tell you right now that you're here this morning partially because on October 12th, you ate. On October 13th, you ate. On October 14th, you ate. For the most part, we don't remember the meals that we eat, and yet God uses those meals to sustain us. In a similar way, you may not remember what you read in your Bible reading plan last week. You may not remember. Some of you, you journal so well and you could remember it maybe a couple weeks back. But how about on October 12th? Can you remember what was in your Bible reading plan that day? Perhaps not, but I can, I can wager this, that you are a different person today than you were last year this time if you're spending time in God's word, regularly sharing meals. And that doesn't just apply to your D group reading or your Bible reading plan, whether you read the Bible in a year, just the New Testament in a year, or maybe you're just working through a, a, a gospel slowly this year. Whatever it is, I know this, that if you ingest regularly the word of God, you will be changed, you will be helped. That's true of Sunday mornings as well. That's what I love about our church. We are just going to continue to consume the meal that God has prepared for us as we faithfully plod along through Scripture. And you may not remember what was preached a month ago. You may not remember what was preached even last year this time. But trust me, trust God that his word is changing your life. And so with that in mind, let's go to the text. Mark chapter 8. We're trusting that God is going to feed us this morning We're going to look at just a few verses, verses 27 to 30. We're getting close to the end of chapter 8. A lot has taken place in this chapter, and I want to just give you a little bit of a reminder as it relates to the context before we actually read this passage. So at the beginning of the passage, Jesus miraculously feeds 4,000 people. Now, we could, we could actually do some math here and say, well, it was probably more like 20,000 or, or 25,000, but w- why do we even need to do that? It's likely that that's true, but let's not just, let's not pass over. 4,000 people explicitly stated were fed. That's incredible. With just a few small resources, Jesus multiplies them out. Right after that, the Pharisees, they come to Jesus after Jesus leaves. The Pharisees approach Jesus and they say, hey, give us a sign. We want to know that you are who you say you are. We want to know who you are anyway. They ask Jesus, what does he do? He tells them, you're not going to get a sign. We found this out. They didn't really want a sign. They'd gotten enough. 
They were trying to trip Jesus up. They were trying to catch him. So Jesus feeds the 4,000. Then the Pharisees, they seek a sign. Jesus is in the boat with his disciples as they leave that place. And he's kind of like, ah, goodness. Let me tell you boys something. Watch out for the Pharisees, the leaven of the Pharisees. Watch out for the leaven of Herod. And they're like, leaven, hey, we're hungry. Remember that? Jesus is like, come, come on, I'm telling, I'm trying to teach you something. And you're worried about food. What's, what's going on with you? He says, are your, your hearts are hardened. Your ears are stopped up. You're, you have eyes, but you can't even see. And they go into Bethsaida in the next little passage there. And there Jesus encounters a group of friends who bring this blind man, their mutual friend. They bring him to Jesus and they beg him to heal this guy. And again, miraculously, Jesus heals this guy. What Mark's doing with this, he's, he's telling a story as he does. The way that he's put all of these pieces together, he's made another, in a sense, a sandwich, or at least. He's, he's at least prepared a meal for us. And he's pointing to something. And on the heels of Jesus healing this blind man, that was done in two stages, Mark records this for us. Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 30. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you're the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. This is God's word. Let's ask him to bless it. Father, we've gathered this morning not to sing a song or to pray a prayer, although these things are part. But we've gathered here this morning to sit under the teaching of your word because we believe in your word there is life. And so would you use this reading would you use our time in this passage to conform us into the image of Christ? Holy Spirit, would you quicken hearts this morning? And would you shape in us into the image of Jesus? We pray your blessings on this now. Amen. As I typically do, I want to give you kind of a main point this morning of our text. And so if you're writing things down, if you're only going to write a few down, if you're just that strict... Then write this down. The Christ, this is the main point, the Christ is God's response to your need. The Christ is God's response to your need. You see, Peter, in this famous passage, makes the confession that Jesus, you're the Christ, you're the Son of God. And when we hear the, you're the Christ, most of what is tied up in that washes right over us. What does that even mean? Let somebody be the Christ. Well, we know that it's this word. It's kind of like a junk drawer term for us. Now, it's not supposed to be that, but we don't really know how to define that. We don't know all the things that are tied up in that, and we especially don't know what Peter was thinking if we don't take our time to try to excavate some of this and say, what was he meaning when he called Jesus the Christ? Of course, we know that. We know he's the Christ. But what was Peter saying? It's my hope that we see this morning that the Christ is God's response to your need. It's not Jesus' last name. Let's keep 
Let's work through this passage, though. Verse 27, it says, And Jesus went on with his disciples. This is a drum that I'm going to continue to beat because Mark beats it. Jesus was with his disciples. We like to think that Jesus was with his disciples so that he could go do miracles in Caesarea Philippi or, or in Jerusalem or in Galilee or wherever it is that he's going to be at. But really what Jesus is doing, and Mark highlights it regularly, is that he's spending time with his disciples. That's what chapter 8 is all about. It's not about feeding the, or the crowds. It's not about the Pharisees. It's about Jesus helping, to, to helping his disciples, his, his followers, his students to understand who he really is. He's with them, and I love that. He's with us this morning as well as we read his word. Continuing on in verse 27, it says that he goes to the, the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Well, Jesus and his disciples, they, they leave Bethsaida and they go northwards uh, towards Caesarea Philippi. And, and that's about 25 miles away, maybe, maybe a little bit longer, depending on where, what village they're in. And uh, if you have been around the church at any length of time, if you've read any of the New Testament, you might be like, Caesarea Philippi. I think I've heard of that before. Well, be careful because uh, there's not much at stake here, but there are a couple different Caesareas. Uh, one famous one is Caesarea Philippi. We'll talk about that this morning. Another one is Caesarea Maritima. And that's out on the, the coastline. That's not where they're at right now. This is uh, Caesarea Philippi. And that's, uh, again, 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. It's about 40, uh, 40 miles southwest of Damascus. It overlooks the Jordan Valley there. It's at the, the base of Mount Hermon. And this is a unique time. We won't spend a lot of time talking about the history of Caesarea Philippi and that area, uh, but this is interesting. So if you're a, a history nerd, then this might be helpful for you. You, you might enjoy this. D during Alexander the Great's conquest, and he's there in the area for a portion of time, and uh, this is during the fourth century, but there's a shrine that's located in a cave there, and uh, it's actually one of the sources for the Jordan River. And that, that uh, shrine was dedicated to the pagan god Pan, uh, and so Pan was the Greek god of forests and deserted places and as well as flocks and shepherds. And uh, around the time of uh, Antiochus the Great, uh, the site was called uh, Paneum or Paneus. And uh, there um, it, lots of pagan worship went on, and, and, uh, as you can imagine. Around 20 BC, uh, Augustus, Caesar Augustus, gave the district of Paneum or Paneus to Herod the Great. And then Herod builds a temple. That's what Herod does. He likes to build temples. And so he builds a temple of white marble and he dedicates it to Caesar Augustus who gave him that area. But then after Herod dies, uh, the, the area is given to his son, Philip. And, and Philip expands the area and he names it uh, Caesarea Philippi, right? It's in honor of Caesar Tiberius and also of himself. So Caesar, Caesarea and Philippi, Philip, right? And so that, that, that's a short history there. There's a lot, of, a lot of pagan stuff that went on in this area. A lot of false worship going on in this place. A lot of people risen up, claiming to be somebody that they're not, exalting themselves over God. And so this neighborhood, I believe it's a fitting place to discuss the Messiah. Commentators, they, they, they've, they've talked about the significance of Jesus' messiahship being first uh, recognized here in this area. The area that just by its name affirms that G uh, Caesar is Lord and not Jesus. So that's a little bit of the background. This is where they're located at. Continuing on in verse 27, it says, And on the way, he asks his disciples, Jesus asks his disciples, Who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? 
You ever been in a situation like that where you're like, I wonder what people think of me? Now, maybe you're not like crushed by it. You're not governed by it. But it is kind of like fun to think like, I wonder what people think of you. Don't ask the question. It might turn out poorly. I've learned from experience. But Jesus here, he's bold. He just comes right out and he says, hey, what's word on the street? What do people think of me? What are people saying about me? And the response in verse 28, they told him, John the Baptist. Some say you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets, John the Baptist. Why would they think that Jesus is John the Baptist? You might think this last Old Testament prophet, why would they, they, their lives overlapped. They were contemporaries of one another. Why would they think Jesus is actually John the Baptist? Well, give them a break, just a little bit. Uh, In those days, they didn't have a newspaper like we had. They don't have Facebook Live. Uh, Nobody was watching John preach uh, through Facebook Live out there by the Jordan River. Hey, I'm out at the Jordan River today and got a whole crowd here. We're We're about to preach a sermon. People are gonna be baptized. And, you know, there was none of that. John the Baptist wasn't tagged on Facebook, right? So they could check that out. Wasn't any Google And so maybe the people had got confused. They'd heard of John the Baptist, not preaching in their air, but they've heard of John the Baptist and they're wondering, maybe this is John the Baptist. Or maybe they're just thinking that since John's now dead, that the spirit and power of John, not in a reincarnation sense, but the spirit and power, the blessing, the the mantle, if you will, has now been passed on Elijah to Elisha type of a way from John to Jesus. Maybe that's what they're thinking when they say that. Either way, it would be a small honor for you to be confused with John the Baptist, would it not? Jesus even said of John the Baptist, none, there's none born greater of woman than John the Baptist. That's a compliment, but it's not Jesus. It's not true. Some others say Elijah. What's interesting about Elijah is that in Malachi chapter four, verse five, this is what the word of God says. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. We know that Elijah or one like Elijah was to come and prepare the way for the Messiah. And so some, when they think of Jesus, they say, we don't know all the details, but we know there's something special about that guy. Maybe he's here in fashion, according to Malachi 4, 5, that he's come before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And yet, again, Jesus is not Elijah, or I should say Elijah is no Jesus. Mark also says that they say this, he's one of the prophets. Well, in that phrase, one of the prophets, they're not saying add Jesus to the list of long prophets. What that, uh, what that phrase is actually saying that he is, again, one of the, the prophets in some way come back to life. In some way, his spirit now is on Jesus or in Jesus in, in, some, in some way. But Matthew also tells us that they, you, they don't just say one of the prophets, but they actually throw in another name. Maybe he's Jeremiah. Some people think that he's Jeremiah. Why would they think that? Well, it's interesting. Jeremiah, according to 2 Maccabees, had hidden the ark. Right before the the temple was destroyed, Jeremiah grabs the ark and he sneaks it out and he hides it in a cave. And the idea that is is, is put forth in 2 Maccabees, not a, a Bible book, the idea is that he'll return before Messiah shows back up, that he'll show up and guess what he'll have with him? He's gonna have the ark. And so some people are thinking maybe Jesus is Jeremiah and maybe he's gonna bring the ark back. Now, John, Elijah, Jeremiah, they're all recognized as great prophets. 
If, if one of us is going to be confused with somebody, wouldn't it be great if we were accidentally confused with one of these prophets? And yet for Jesus to be thought of as just being on the same plane or the same level as one of these remarkable guys, that's, that's, that's touching. And it's kind of them. And, and they're trending in the right direction, and yet their conclusion, all of them, is sorely lacking. And the disciples know that. Jesus asked pointedly, who do they, who do the people, what's word on the street? What are they saying about me? And well, this is what they're saying about you. You're just some great prophet. Like many today who express their appreciation for Jesus, uh, maybe even along with some other religious leader, uh, the people of Jesus' own day, uh, they, 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 as reported by the disciples, they, they hadn't really grasped the full significance of Jesus in his ministry. And so they look at Jesus and maybe today even then they say, yeah, I think he was a great teacher. He taught some great stuff. He's a powerful dude. And when his followers actually do what he says, it like brings blessing to the world, right? Hospitals are built, wells are dug, people are kind. There's a lot of forgiveness. When they do what this great prophet said, then things usually turn out well. But really, he's just a great prophet. That's all he is. Just like in Jesus' day, a lot of people have misunderstood Jesus. And maybe you're not so brave. Maybe you're not so brazen to say that about Jesus, to say, well, I think he's just a good prophet, but by your actions, do you demonstrate that? Have you just put Jesus on this shelf, this same plane as all the other prophets in a long line, maybe even including other religions? There was a lot of confusion in the air. Not really any consensus Nobody really knew what to believe in the crowd. What comes to mind, it's so interesting. And if you have your Bible, I would encourage you to flip over to, to Hebrews chapter one. It's one of my favorite passages of scripture. Hebrews chapter one, verses one through four. This is what the word of God says. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. It's true. God spoke to his people through Elijah. He spoke to his people through Jeremiah. He spoke to his people through John the Baptist. This is what verse two says. But in these last days, in contrast to the prophets who have gone before, he has spoken to us, not through a prophet only, but through by his son, whom God appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the entire world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. I love that passage. High Christology. He's far more than a prophet. He's not just one of the great prophets. He is the son of God. And Jesus, hearing what the crowds were saying, knowing probably beforehand, asking the disciples, hearing what they said, he turns the question and says, now, verse 29, but who do you say that I am? And this is a wonderful rhetorical question. We could really stop right here. We're not going to, don't get your hopes up. But we could stop right here, close it down, give an invitation. Who do you say that Jesus is? but let's not get the, the cart before the horse. Let's see what happens here. 
Again, Jesus is with his disciples for a reason. He's teaching them. He's meeting them where they are at. He's shaping them into the men that they're going to be that we read about in Acts. There at the beginning, Peter stands up and preaches Pentecost. Well, that's not the same Peter. It is, but it's not the same Peter that we read about at the beginning of all the Gospels. Jesus is looking at them, and with a question, he's beginning to shape them, to get them thinking, and he says, who do men say that I am? Whatever they say, forget about that. Tell me, what do you say? It's foolish of me to just say, well, that's a good question. Well, of course it's a good question. Ever since the disciples, they left their nets to follow Jesus, they've questioned, no doubt, in their hearts, who is this guy? I can just call out to me and I leave and say, follow me. And I just leave what I'm doing and I start following him. Who is that guy? What? And what happened on that day? We don't really understand that. Imagine being one of the disciples. How did I get here? Why am I following this guy? How could somebody have such authority over me? Furthermore, what kind of man has the, the ability to calm the wind and the waves? Who can do that? What kind of man is that? I can give sight to the blind. I can open the ears of the deaf. That can even raise the dead. What kind of man is this? This is what's going on in their mind. And, and we as readers, in the 21st century, we, we know from the get-go who this guy Jesus is, Right? Mark starts right off the bat and, and calls Jesus the Christ. And so we have this privilege, but the disciples, they don't have that inside information. This is, this is coming to them in real time, right? And they've been left in a sense to work this out, right? To, to, to grow the seed that's been planted in their hearts. They've, they've seen these, these, this teaching. They've wit witnessed all these events, and they recognize that there's something unique. There's something different about their teacher. Jesus, the great seed sower of chapter four, Mark. He's sown the seeds of the kingdom in the hearts of these men. And now with this question, he checks in on the progress of those seeds. And he says, who do you say that I am? How does Peter answer? How does he answer? You are the Christ. Before we talk about the fact that he's speaking of Jesus, let's just, again, work towards unpacking this idea of Christ. The, the Greek word Christ is the same word as Messiah in Hebrew. And so throughout the New Testament, when we see the word Messiah, we're talking, this is what it's speaking of. When we see the idea of, of, of anointed one, that's what it's speaking of. Messiah means anointed one, just as Christ means anointed one. And so who is anointed? What's the context, the greater context of this word Christ? Well, prophets are anointed. We see that in the Old Testament. We also see that priests are anointed. And when we say anointed, we're talking about anointed literally, oil poured on their head, anointing them. Prophets are anointed. Priests are anointed in the Old Testament. And even kings are anointed. Exodus chapter 40, verse 15 and anoint them as you anointed their father that they may serve me as priests. And their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. This is Exodus chapter 40. 
1 Samuel chapter 16, then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, speaking of David, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. What we see here is that in the Old Testament, there's this, there's this uh, precedent of the appointed one the appointed leader, the one upon whom God's spirit would rest, that he would receive an anointing, a physical one, that would represent the spirit of God empowering him and giving him the authority to go forward and accomplish the work of Yahweh. This is what we see in the Old Testament, practically speaking. But there's also promises that there wouldn't just be anointed ones, but that there would be an anointed one. A definite article, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. Isaiah 11 points to this. Helps to unpack this idea that really began in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. With the, the, the serpent's head being crushed, at least being prophesied about by the seed of the woman. But as that is continued to be developed in Isaiah chapter 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. This is a prophecy of this future Christ. In Isaiah 42, again, behold, my servant, my anointed one, the, the one upon my, whom my spirit rests. The one whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Jeremiah chapter 23, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. With this idea of what an anointed one is and who this particular one will be, this future coming Messiah or Christ, the Jews had continued to work through that and to develop and to chew on this coming Messiah They'd been conquered and taken into captivity. They'd been dispersed throughout the known world. And at a certain point, many, many of them had been allowed to return back to the land, even after they had been conquered. And they rebuilt the temple and they rebuilt the walls, but they remained under foreign power. One oppressive nation after the next, ruling Israel. But then at this point in time, the time of Jesus, first century, Rome was the world power. They were in control of Palestine, the Holy Land, and the Jews were submitting themselves to Caesar and all his oppression. So in this period of time, the, the Jews believed that the Messiah, the anointed one, the, that the Christ would arrive and that he would conquer and free the people of Israel. So the first mention of Messiah in all the Bible, like, like I said a moment ago, was in Genesis chapter three. And so all the way up, this message of hope, a, a coming deliverer, a coming des destroyer that would crush the head of evil itself was coming. And over time they had held on and, and even in their own minds and own culture and writings had developed this idea of hope. 
So every mention or thought of Messiah has developed that spirit of hope in the hearts of God's people from Genesis 3 all the way until now. And that's the thing that you need to know. That's our first big sub-point, that Messiah equals hope. Messiah equals hope. He equals hope for God's people. The Messiah would deliver God's people from the curse of evil oppression in both physical and spiritual realms. So when we think of this title that's given to Jesus and we say, Jesus Christ, remember, think about that. What is Christ actually saying? What's saying from Genesis 3 all the way till now? All of these passages, as they are sewn together, are causing our hearts to sing with hope toward the coming of this anointed one. And it brings hope. Messiah equals hope. When Peter says Christ, he means that God's response to man's desperate condition is this guy. So Peter takes the Christ label, the Messiah label, and he places it on Jesus and he says, you are the Christ. He recognized there in that moment that Jesus was God's appointed agent, the one who was coming that marked the fulfillment of God's promise and the realization of Israel's hopes. In essence, Peter is saying, Jesus, you are our hope. Now he's saying it more formally than that, but he's also saying, Jesus, you're our hope. You're you're the one that fulfills all of our Old Testament expectations. I love this, that Paul, when he uses the phrase in Christ, he's really pointing to this intimate relationship between Jesus Christ and his people, one that's marked with hope. So Paul and Peter, they're correct. Jesus is Christ and he claims to be Christ. He claims to be God's appointed answer for man's sinful, evil condition. John chapter four, verse 25. I'm gonna gonna read this to you, but I encourage you to go back and look it up. John chapter four, 25 to 26. The woman at the well, she says this. I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. She has hope that when the Messiah shows up, that he'll put to bed all of these crazy notions and all of the confusion that surrounds the term and the day that they live in. She believes he's gonna settle all this, all the questions that we have. He is God's appointed one, full and marked with wisdom. Jesus says to her, the man that you hope for, the anointed one that you are longing for, I am he. I who speak to you am he. Jesus believed himself to be God's response to our condition, to our need. Matthew chapter 26, verses 63 and 64. This is so interesting. That's so good. But Jesus, being interrogated, remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. 
Church, Jesus believed that he was the Messiah. He believed that all of the Old Testament prophecies, all of the hope would find its rest rightfully in him. Jesus is the Messiah. The foundation of the gospel is that Jesus is God's answer to man's problem. He's our only hope, if you will. He's God's response to our need. He is the Christ. Peter's statement for us doesn't seem so radical. It's helpful. It's helpful for us. Okay, we know that. We know that now. But imagine being a first century Jew. We found him. We found the Messiah. It's powerful. Here's what's fascinating. As our brother Chris pointed out last week, that the healing of the blind man, it's connected with Peter's confession to his statement about the identity of Jesus Christ. I want to point out really three things about Peter's statement that I think will be helpful for you to be reminded of. Going back to the last week passage that we looked at, the blind man, he was healed by Jesus. He was brought to Jesus by his friends and Jesus healed him. Mark records that, that healing account where he does, again, for a reason. It, it kind of serves as a, as, as a commentary or as a light of sorts, shining on the passage that we're looking at today. That Jesus would be able to heal this man, that he would be able to give him his sight, even progressively continue to reveal more or to heal more. I don't know if you remember this, but Peter is actually introduced to Jesus by Andrew. So like the blind man, Peter was taken to Jesus by a brother, by a friend, and then Jesus heals him. This is what the Bible says. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon, which is Peter, and he said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. If you're new to studying the Bible, I want to explain that there are actually four gospel accounts. And so Mark is just one of four. We have Matthew and his account of the gospel and the message of Jesus, the life of Jesus. We have Mark, Luke, and we have John. So we've been diving through, diving and systematically working through Mark's gospel, Mark's account, but there are three others. In each of the gospels, uh, they, they have their own angle. Same story, all true, all inspired, but each unique if you've been in this study for any amount of time, you know that Mark, he's kind of in a hurry, isn't he? Right? He wants, us to, he wants to give us the, the bare facts and just move right along and say things like immediately, immediately, immediately. And so you kind of get a little bit nervous when you're, when you're uh, maybe sometimes when you're reading Mark, if you're used to reading Matthew or one of the other authors. But he's concise. And what Mark illustrates for us in the picture of Jesus healing this blind man is plainly stated by Matthew. You see, Matthew tells us very clearly what Mark says by the picture, that Jesus is the one that heals. In Matthew chapter 16, this is what the word of God says, verse 15 and 18. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. 
And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Verse 17, and Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Peter, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. If, if you're going to be taking notes continually, there's three things about this statement that Jesus is the Christ that I want you to mark down. One is that it was, re, it was given to Peter through revelation and not reason. It was given to Peter by revelation and not reason. Where did Peter not get this idea about Jesus from? Where did he not get it from? He did not get it from flesh and blood. In other words, it wasn't his brother who brought him to this place of confidence in Jesus's ministry. It wasn't uh, Peter's sharp ability to reason either. No. Reason is the capacity of consciously making sense of things. It's, a, it's applying logic or trying to find structure in new or existing information, right? It's one of the foundational principles of philosophy and science and even language and mathematics and art. It's typically thought of as one of the things that makes us unique from the animal kingdom, separates us from Fido and Fifi, right? But it's not reasoning that has brought Peter to this conclusion, it's not his own intellect. Yes, he had heard his brother's statement about Jesus being the Messiah. He had seen the miracles at the hand of this great teacher, this prophet. And it seems logical to conclude that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, but Jesus plainly tells him, you are a blessed man, Peter. You are blessed. Why? Because God the Father has revealed this truth to you about me. You didn't figure this out on your own. I want you to think about that for a minute. If you're paying attention, that's got to be doing a couple things for you this morning. You're thinking about Peter. He makes this great statement. You're like, yes, that kid in the class that gets it right. And you're like, man, I wish I could be like him. Man, why didn't he call on me? I was just about to raise my hand. I would love to everybody see that I got that thing right. Maybe you've never been like that, me all the time. Peter, he makes a statement, but Jesus is like, hey, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. Not your brother, and not your own, you know, brain be, you know, between, the, between your ears, right? What that does for me is it, it creates this extra level of humility. What you know about Jesus that is true, you didn't come up with. Think about that. All the true things that you know about God, all the true things that you know about salvation, all the true things that you know, where did you get them from? Who has revealed them to you? By his grace, it is the Father. Sadly, when we forget this truth, we as Christians can become prideful. We can become unkind. And nothing of the short sort should ever occur. That he in his mercy has given us truth and allowed us to see that Jesus, in fact, is the Christ. Should breed humility. Should also breed gratitude. The second thing that it does for me is it stirs up gratitude. Had it not been for the intentional work of the Father, sending the Spirit to reveal this truth in my life and in your life, you too would be lost. And you say, of course, yes, I'm humble. Yes, I'm, I'm thankful. Well, take the time and really think through that. Meditate on that. You should well up with thankfulness. Three, it produces hope. 
produces hope. You might ask yourself this question as you consider Christianity. Is it, is it possible that I'm too broke for Jesus? And I don't mean broke financially, that you're too crushed. You're too banged up. You don't know enough. Is it possible that you're too far from God that you'll miss all the obvious things and therefore miss that Jesus is in fact the Christ? Well, this story produces hope because Jesus clearly says, listen, Peter, this is not you. It's not you that's done this. And so yes, we should be humble because of that. He's given that to us. We should be grateful because he's given us this truth, but we should also have hope that not only can he save you, but the person that's the farthest in your mind from repenting of their sin and placing their faith in Jesus Christ, even that person, if the Lord God determines to reveal to them the truths of his identity, they too can be saved. And so nobody's too far. If you're here this morning, you say, I don't know. I think I might be too broke for Jesus, too banged up for Jesus. Well, he doesn't just fix, fix cracked screens. He replaces circuit boards and batteries and everything else. But maybe you're in this fourth category. Maybe when you read this, it creates a hunger. And I hope that's you. I hope there are some here this morning that as you hear this testimony, that flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Peter, but my father. I hope that creates a hunger, that the word of God, that our father would continue to do that and that you'd be hungry for him to reveal truth to you. And I'm not pointing towards some new revelation, but that he, through the spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, that he would use this word to open your minds to truth. And I pray that you're hungry for that this morning. Whether you've been walking with the Lord for years or whether you're just now wondering, is there something to this Christian religion? I pray that there's a hunger in your heart that, that the Father would feed you by the Spirit through his word. The Father, he reveals the truth of Jesus' identity. It's not come to Peter by human reasoning. Matthew explicitly states that. Mark illustrates it. But that is what the whole previous sermon was about. You can't give yourself sight. Jesus has to do it. God has to do it. This parallel passage is, is so important because it tells us what he's demonstrating in Mark, but Furthermore, Jesus states here that the church will be built upon. It'll be founded upon something in this passage. I don't know if you're like me, but when I hear Jesus say something like that, like I, radars go up. I'm like, what's, what's going on? I need to figure out what is the church built on? I want to I know. I love the church. And I'm hungry for the, the Father to reveal truth to me. I hope that you are as well. And so when he says, hey, this is what the church is built on, I'm, I'm locking in. I want to see this. Unfortunately, many folks that claim to be Christians, especially the Catholic church, they draw from this passage that, that Jesus will build his church on Peter. He says in verse 18, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. They come away from this passage and they say, oh, Peter, you are Peter. Jesus points to Peter and because Peter means rock or stone, and then Jesus, after the comma, says, and on this rock, I'm going to build my church, the conclusion by many is that Peter is that rock. A better way to understand it would be that it's the confession 
The true way to understand it would be that the confession that Peter is making, the statement that Peter is offering back to Jesus, that statement is the rock upon which the church is built. Maybe it could be stated something like this if it were to be made into a movie. You know, Peter, your name means rock. And that's a bit ironic because what you've just said, that statement is the rock that I'm gonna build my church on. Jesus didn't build his church on a man, not on Peter. He built it on the statement that Peter made. Jesus' church, he is building his people. He is building his church. And he's building it on the confession of Peter, on the statement that Peter makes for the first time in the history of the gospel. Peter says, you are the Christ. Possibly there, the mouth of Caesarea Philippi, that evil shrine. It stands as the Messiah in some way being Caesar. Peter says, no. Jesus, you are our hope. We won't find it in Caesar. We won't find it in some false god or idol or anything else. We're gonna find it alone in you. Again, the the church has interpreted this passage throughout the years in ways that lead to, to, to Peter even becoming the first of many popes. But what Jesus is saying is that the confession of Peter is the foundation that the church is built on, that Jesus is building his church on this statement, that Jesus is the, the Messiah, that Jesus is our hope. And what Jesus is plainly stating, it can be lost in focus if we, if we end up leaning too heavy or paying too much attention to what he's not saying. And so not only is he not saying that Peter is the Pope, but he is saying something more than that. He's saying this, that the, the, the testimony that Jesus is the Christ is not supplemental, it's foundational. That Jesus being the Messiah is foundational, not supplemental. And you might say, well, Josh, you're, you're preaching to the choir this morning. Well, maybe the choir needs preaching too. He's foundational. He's not supplemental. As we look at this passage more in depth next week, uh, we'll, we'll notice that Jesus, the Messiah, is the foundation of the Christian church. Jesus alone And I love these two passages, John chapter 20, verse 31. But these things, John offers at the end of his book, the end of his gospel, the end of his account of the life and ministry of Jesus. These things are written to you so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life through his name, that Jesus is the Christ. First John chapter five, verse one, I love this. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whomever has been born of him. Remember that, what does Messiah essentially mean? What is it pointing to when Peter says, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ? What is he pointing to? What is he saying about Jesus? You are the hope for God's people. And here's what I wanna underline in this text. He is the hope not he among other things, not these things plus a little bit of Jesus, like everything bagel seasoning, right? You just throw it on whatever and it tastes good. That's not what this is. Jesus is the foundation of our faith and it's built upon him. He is the hope for the church. And here's here's why I said it's not supplemental because we tend to think, or at least we tend to act like Jesus is an add-on. Like, I'll hope in Christ, yes, especially on Sunday, but I'm also going to hope in my job. 
I'm gonna hope that I get this new job and that will give me purpose and meaning and security. I, that's, what I'm gonna, that's what I'm gonna hope in. I, I bring that up. It's not supplemental because sometimes we like to place our faith and our hope in our current spouse or maybe a future one, provided you're not married. <laughs> or maybe you say, I'll hope in Christ, but I'll also slice off a little bit of hope for my political candidate. And that's how God is going to meet my needs. And so Jesus plus this, Jesus plus that, and this is what I'll place my rest in. You see, there's nothing wrong with jobs. There's nothing wrong with kids or political candidates, maybe some of them anyway. But there's an inordinate amount of hope that is given to, uh, from the church to other things outside of Christ. Other than Jesus Christ. And you say, I don't think that's true of me. But if you're pressing, pastor, how can I know? Well, I'm really glad that you thought that. I'm also glad I could hear that. And I'm going to answer you. Here's a question. Ask yourself this question. Yeah. What if you lost in this life would not be worth living for anymore? If you lost something in this life, maybe it's a good thing, but if you lost it, is there a time where you could say, if I lost that, life wouldn't be worth living? And maybe you wouldn't even verbalize that, but you'd still kind of think that. Finish this statement. I can't live without this. Maybe you say, I can't live without my spouse. Maybe you say, I can't live without my parents. I can't live without my kids. Maybe it's different. Maybe you say things like, I just can't live. My heart tells me that I can't live without a good reputation. I can't live without respect of my peers and without the respect of my neighbors. Another question that you could ask is, what sends me into discouragement? What sends me into depression? What, what, what threatens to flip the boat of stability in my life? And I know it's silly, but how many love songs have we heard that say something to the effect of, I can't live without you? And I get it. That kind of gets the point across. I love you so much. But is that true? In the life of the Christian, is there anything that you would say, if I didn't have this, I wouldn't have any hope. I wouldn't have any purpose. I wouldn't have any reason for living. I'd be lost in depression. I don't know for sure, but I can, I can say this. I'm suspect that if that's true in your life, that maybe that thing is supplanting your singular hope. Maybe you're not so singular, singularly hopeful like Peter was in that moment. Saying, Jesus, all the things that I need, are found in you. Now attached to that principle is this third one. And it's definite, not doubtful. So this testimony is, it's foundational. It's not supplemental. But this idea that we will be built, that we actually will be built up, that the church will succeed if we're built on this testimony that is a definite thing and we need not doubt it. Jesus has promised to build his church. He says in Matthew 16, on this rock, I will build my church. He's promising to build the church. Now remember, a, a church is, it's, it's not a building. And we call it a building, but oftentimes we say, hey, it's the church building, but it's, church is not a building. 
The church is God's people. And those who look to Jesus as their Messiah, they, they look to him for hope. They, they look to him that he would in a global and in an individual sense that he would build his people. And he will do such a thing. He will do that. He has done that. If it's built that church on this testimony. He'll do it in a global sense and he'll do it in a local sense. A local church is a group of people who submit to the word of God and they commit to each other in covenant membership. And so Hagerstown Church, we can have this confidence that for the last two years, Jesus Christ has been building his church. Here's why, because this church is built on the premise, on the truth, on the principle that Jesus is our only hope. And so we gather on Sundays not to, hear the, not to hear the words of Josh, but to hear the words of Jesus. Growth in your life, it occurs in, in parallel with your dependence on him. When you look to him for your hope in every way, that's when you experience growth. Both collectively and individually, this is true. As individuals that are a part of the church and collectively as the church, both local and global, universal, it grows when we are submitted to, when we are dependent on, in hope, Jesus alone. As we look to Jesus with confidence and expectation, we are built up. And when we depend on other things, church, we are laid low. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 says this. I've been crucified with Christ. I've been crucified with our Messiah. I've been crucified with our hope. God's answer for my sin it's no longer I who live now, but it's Christ. It's that hope that lives in me and the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When he is our hope, when he is our Messiah, we are built up and the life that we live, we live by faith in the son of God, in that Messiah. And when we do that, we cannot fail. We will be built up. He is the builder we will be built. So as we get close to landing the plane, if you're not experiencing the, the building that Jesus is speaking of, then perhaps you're not on the right foundation. Maybe you've drifted to another foundation. Maybe you've taken that hope that you once had in the Messiah and you've placed it on some other Messiah, some other foundation. I can assure you there is nothing wrong with the builder that promised to build. And there is nothing wrong with the foundation that he promised to build on. He is our hope. And perhaps if you're not being built up, perhaps it's not him that you're resting on. I'm reminded of Matthew chapter six. The wise man builds his house on what? The rock. My Hope is that your house be built on the only sure foundation and that all the other alternatives that our culture through philosophy gives to us saying this is your hope, that those would all be set to the side and that we as the people of God would rest in Christ and receive that reward for our hope. And so I ask you, has your hope in Christ been surpassed by other promises of hope? that sidestep or even maybe diminish what Christ has done in your life? Does your gaze need to be readjusted? Does your footing need to be moved a bit? And like the blind man from Bethsaida, but in a spiritual sense, may your eyes be opened this morning to that need. He saw that Jesus was the Christ that morning. Jesus was his hope. 
Peter, up for Peter. That statement was revealed to him. He didn't reason to it. It's the foundation of the Christian life. It's not supplemental. It is definite. Jesus will build his church and we have no need to doubt. That's the good news that Christians have embraced for 2,000 years. It's the foundation of our faith. Every promise of God, every need of our race is found in Jesus Christ. Jesus looks at our church this morning and he sees that maybe there's some of us here, if not all of us, that need that need more. We need another sight. We need another healing in some sense. We need to level up in what we understand Jesus to be. We need to grow. We need to be built up. And what does he do? He sees the possibility of a changed heart and he steps in and he builds his church. Before we close, I want to just address verse 30 quickly. It says, and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. This is not the first time that we see Jesus telling him something like this, to keep quiet. But let me offer you a, possible, a few possible reasons. First is this. One, what Peter just said is incredibly dangerous. It's incredibly dangerous. And, and frankly, it's too early to draw the attention of Rome and the high priests. If you're taking notes, Mark chapter 14, verses 61 to 64 says this. And again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. This is the first time in Mark that Jesus says, yeah, I'm the Christ. But he says, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. What happens in verse 63? And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. So Jesus standing trial when it's clearly heard on his lips that he is the Messiah, that he's the son of the blessed and that he's coming in power. They declare he's worthy of death. So one thing, this is not a reason necessary for Jesus not to speak, but it's something that would be helpful for you to know. When he says, keep silent, recognize this. What he just said is not safe. It's dangerous. And so maybe for his own safety at this particular time, for the safety of his disciples, he says, hey, let's keep that between us. But two goes hand in hand with one. Not only was it a dangerous message, but it wasn't time. It wasn't fear of, of this message getting out and maybe Jesus being killed would stop him from, from allowing them to talk about this. No, Jesus knew that along the, his own earthly path, located toward the end was a bloody cross. He knew that from day one. It was one of the stops along the way. He wasn't running from it, but it wasn't time, not yet. The Pharisees, they could be aggravated too much before the appointed time. It could possibly result in a premature arrest. So God, Christ, the sovereign one, says not yet. He still has work to do, particularly with these disciples. And that leads us into the third thing. The third thing to keep in mind is this. The disciples were still unclear. We're really going to see this clearly displayed next week. They're still a bit unclear as to who Jesus really is. Today's sermon is entitled, Right conclusion. They've come to the right conclusion. They've declared in their minds, the spirit of God has revealed it. This is the Christ, but their application of that goes awry next week. We see that they come to the wrong, they apply, they have the wrong application. 
And Jesus has to correct them. And so the disciples are still unclear. Jesus is still with his disciples. He's still patiently teaching them. And so if they were to go now, perhaps they would teach something that is not actually true. And so Jesus says, for now, hold on there, skipper. Just hang tight. We'll we'll get to that. As we close, I want to draw your attention back to the point of this text. Who does Peter say that Jesus is? Well, he he says that Jesus, you are the Christ. I want to end this morning with a question. Who do you say that Jesus is? What do you say about Jesus? Who is he? I'm gonna invite you to just bow your heads, close your eyes and take a time to just search your own heart this morning. Reflect on your own life. Reflect on your view of Jesus. By the power of the word of God and his Holy Spirit, would you ask this question in the presence of God? Who do I say that Jesus is? Perhaps this morning you've become prideful in your knowledge of Jesus. You've assumed in some way that you've come to this place by yourself and become haughty, arrogant, unkind. If you say that Jesus is the Messiah, recognize that you say that because of his mercy towards you. Repent. In your heart, are you hoping in Jesus, but are you also hoping in another Messiah of sorts? Are you also placing your hope in the things that he's blessed you with? Have you misplaced your hope? This morning, I pray that you would repent of that. And by God's mercy, that he's revealed that to you, that you'd turn and place your full hope in Christ. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, this is the first I've heard of this. Maybe this morning you, like that blind man, have been touched by Jesus. And you begin to see. It's my hope and prayer that you'll stick around, continue to ask questions, and receive another healing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that you have given us truth through your word. Even though many of us, even from young ages, had misunderstood misunderstanding about the identity of Christ. You and your patience, you and your kindness, your faithfulness to your people have revealed the true identity of the Christ. Not just what he is, hope, but also who he is. He's Jesus. So we thank you for that. And we pray that we would place our hope in that Messiah and that we would turn from all these other false ones. That as we do that, that you would use us to reach those around us as well. We ask that these things be done in the name of Jesus and for his glory alone. Amen.